Sarah. Melissa. What are we reading today? We are reading Hidden Sea, a tale of the once and future Nutcracker. I can't wait to hear about it. Sarah, we're making our way through the holiday season. Here we are in mid-December. What are you doing to get in the mood? Well, I feel proud of myself in one sense because we have our, our tree, we have our decorations. So that's that's good. I'm feeling confident about my Christmas game in terms of at least how it looks at my house and mm -hmm. how my tree looks and all of that. The Present veneers game, of Christmas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, 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 the facade of Christmas is intact. So tree is up. Do you do artificial? Do you do farm fresh? What's oh, your approach? Farm fresh all the way. Yeah, we've been going to this uh, same farm for the last couple of years because I don't know about, are you farm fresh or are you uh, artificial? I hate to admit that we are artificial. Yeah, I'm, I'm guilty of that. I wish we were farm fresh, but not mm. at the moment. Well, um, yeah, we are, we're definitely farm fresh. Like I grew up with like a real tree and so, and Josh did too. And we've got like relatively high ceilings in our living room. So we just try to go for like a, a nice tall one. So yeah, same farm last couple of years. It's called Pulpit Rock, which is kind of a cool name for a Christmas tree farm. It was an adventure going with uh, little William, my son, who's four. Did you give you him know. an ax? Was he able to cut, to make any uh, any incisions uh, <laughs> on said tree? He would love that, my knowledge of William. Oh my God, I yeah, that's, uh, that's the stuff that nightmares are made of, at least my nightmares, but <laughs> yeah, we we had a saw that we were supplied with by the, the Christmas tree farm. And so Josh did uh, work with William a little and like have him practice sawing on like, you know, the stakes that they use to kind of mark out plots and stuff, so. That was as far as it went. Josh did the actual sawing of the tree and no chainsaws or anything like that. But one thing that like cracked me up when we were at this Christmas tree farm, there was a lot of guys working there. And there was one guy in particular that helped us with our tree. He put it on the back of like a small kind of, you know, gator-esque, like all-terrain type vehicle and a little trailer. But he looked like straight up out of a Hallmark movie. And then when we got to where they kind of bag the trees up and we pay there was like at least two more guys like they were ruggedly handsome with like stubble like all wearing different types of flannel shirts and uh it just and they all look like they were in their like maybe i'd say like maybe like late 20s to early 30s and i was like they totally could film and like build some sort of a, a hallmark movie around this particular christmas tree farm do you think that they were actually yeah. just um like unemployed actors and like really if they were filming the hallmark movies they would have done that filming in like april may you know so oh, totally. these movies would be ready to go for december so maybe like it's the same guys and that's how they <laughs> that's how they stay year-round employed by and then it's also like method acting we have had some Hallmark uh, Channel movies, Christmas movies filmed like in our community. There was one, I think it was a couple of years ago. Could I tell you the title? No, because as a rule, I am not a Hallmark Channel uh, movie enthusiast. Although I have, I pass no judgment on anyone who really gets their rocks off watching that. Um, 
But yeah, these guys could have been extras and they thought, you know what? I want to live the Hallmark movie life and I'm going to move <laughs> to Northeast Connecticut and I'm going to work at a Christmas tree farm and hope that a big city gal comes with her aging parents and uh, love, love blooms. So you're not a Hallmark movie type enthusiast necessarily. So what are your, your sort of tendencies in terms of what do you consume to really like fill yourself with Yuletide? Yeah, you know, very good question because as we were brainstorming on our little preview episodes, our holiday preview episodes, and you obviously had a book in mind right away, um, one that I know you've since read for like a, what, third time at this point, um, <laughs> and is going to be part of your holiday traditions. And it made me think like, I don't necessarily have books that I, I, I associate with the holiday season that I kind of come back to year after year. I mean, obviously I have a son and we're reading some like Gr How the Grinch Told Christmas and The Night Before Christmas and some of those books. But um, I, it was a challenge because I thought, okay, if there's one that I haven't read previously that really puts me in the Christmas frame of mind, what what could I what could I draw upon? What's 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 my affiliation with the holidays? What do I do? And and I thought, well, a lot of the books that were out there are very much so in the kind of Hallmark kind of channel type, you know, romance, like somebody coming home unwillingly and then finding love and, and all of that. And that was not what I wanted to read. And it went, made me go back to, okay, well, what, what have I consumed? And for me, it's been film like stop motion in particular. Um, everybody should be familiar with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and, you know, like the Island of Misfit Toys and, you know, yeah. Frosty. Uh, those were all Rankin Bass productions. So Rankin and Bass, I think it was, they were uh, an active production company that produced children's entertainment and films from, I would say like late sixties all the way through like the nineties. And so, Rudolph being one of those stop motion films, Frosty the Snowman being one of those cartoon films. But there was one that I feel like is super obscure that was a favorite of mine. And it's called The Nutcracker Fantasy. And it's a stop motion film. Some famous people actually did the voices. So Melissa Gilbert, who was... Um, Little House on the Prairie. Little House on the Prairie. I know um, all the famous Melissas. Of course you do. Oh, as you should. Um, and then Christopher Lee, the the late great Christopher Lee, was was in this. He did he did voice work for the film. He played um, Uncle Drosselmeyer. Uh, she was the voice of Clara, and it's just really like a fever dream, like phantasmagoric kind of film. And I have since watched it as an adult. I used to watch it every Christmas, and it is like whoa. It it explains a lot about me. I'm really a, ra a Rankin and Bass production myself, apparently. Uh, <laughs> between that film and some of the other ones um, that they've produced that are like, you watch them and you're like, oh, this is a product of the 80s and uh, was not really made for children. But I watched <laughs> it as like a six-year-old, that, that kind of movie. Yeah. There was more money to be made by marketing it to children at that time, I yeah, guess. Like, a, a lot of those films have a lot of dark, like, dark, like, frankly scary elements to them and i remember being afraid watching certain scenes from these films and and the nutcracker fantasy in particular but 
uh, loved it and still love it. I watched it a couple of years ago. My husband bought me the DVD of this Nutcracker fantasy movie. And I was like, it's still a banger, man. Like, <laughs> I still love it. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's funny about this, like how you said I liked being scared because I have been noticing in a lot of the stuff I've been reading, like related to Christmas this year, there's a lot of this whole like tales of the glories and scary ghost stories. Like I think telling scary stories was much more a part of Christmas tradition, say a hundred, 200 years ago. And we've kind of let go of that for all of the holly jolly stuff. But we were reading as a family, the, the Christmas Carol, the Dickens Christmas Carol. Mm. And um, obviously the ghosts like past, present, future, that kind of thing. And then much like you, was not into the whole Christmas uh, romance thing, which like what an industry, like what a powerhouse that has become. Any of the Christmas sections of bookstores are just like puns, like sexual innuendo <laughs> titles yeah. and they're selling like hotcakes and I just wasn't having it. I, that was not what I wanted. And I was kind of chasing the dragon of small things like these because I loved it so much. And so in doing so, I ended up getting like murder mysteries. I was like, I would rather hear about people killing each other at Christmas than, you know, making out on tree farms. <laughs> but yeah, and they all open with these like, you know, epilogues or epilogue or epigraph. I always get that messed up. But I feel like oh, we should know this. We really should. Um, <laughs> oh, God. As, well. No, I'll just say it with confidence and then it'll be right. The epilogue which it certainly is, always had these like ghost related um, statements from previous like Christmas books. So part of your journey was reflecting yes. on your connection to that, that Nutcracker story and you found yes. Hidden Sea. That's right. So uh, the Nutcracker led me down the path to to find Hidden Sea because I, I what I did is I kind of scoured a lot of like top 50, top 20, top 10 Christmas books my particular Google search was like Christmas books that are not romance. <laughs> Make me scared. <laughs> and so I saw this one and I had recognized the, the name of the author, um, Gregory Maguire. And many people would know him mostly through um, his kind of take on the Wizard of Oz story, which he wrote in the book, Wicked, The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West, which was published in 1995 and ended up spawning a bunch of kind of sequels. And then of course, ended up being the basis for Wicked the Musical, which as we all know, has hit the stratosphere. And so this Greg, Gregory Maguire, he's really, he's really fascinated by fair, fairy tales because a lot of his books end up being kind of a fairy tale turned inside out or a fairy tale expanded upon or moved into a different time period. Um, I just saw one that was published in 2020, which I, I saw after I had read Hidden Sea, and it's called A Wild Winter Swan. And I believe that that is actually based off of a folktale that was a, like a Scandinavian folktale. So it's really, I guess, a fascination of his and something that's a passion of his. And so this particular book, which is called Hidden Sea, A Tale of the Once and Future Nutcracker, is his take on the Nutcracker, or I should really say his take on a particular character from the Nutcracker, because what I will say about this book is if you're looking for Christmas, don't necessarily read this book because Christmas only takes up about 20 pages of a almost 300 page book. And it's all ah. at the end. 
I mean, it's, oh. I, I, I'd say it kind of builds up to it. And so for me, I started reading this book in November before I had, you know, was really getting myself into the Christmas spirit. Um, and by the time I finished the book, our Christmas tree was up. So, I mean, I guess it kind of like was on pace with my own kind of, I guess, entry into Christmas for this year. But it, it really isn't about the nutcracker that we all know. It's really the backstory of one of the characters. Part of the model that we're going for here is that I have not read this book. So you yes. are meant to completely just <laughs> elucidate me, illuminate me on this, this book. So, you know, give me a snapshot of what's going on in Hidden Sea. Prepare to be illuminated, Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh Hidden Sea, A Tale of the Once and Future Nutcracker, is a 2017 novel by Gregory Maguire that explores the life and adventures of Dirk Drosselmeyer, the mysterious one-eyed toy maker and creator of the eponymous Nutcracker made famous by both E.T.A. Hoffman's novella, The Nutcracker and the Mouse King, and Tchaikovsky's ballet, The Nutcracker. Hidden Sea is a book fascinated by folk tales, fairy tales, and myth. In fact, Dirk's early years read as if he were a character straight out of the Brothers Grimm. Maguire introduces us to Dirk as a foundling in the Black Forest of early 19th century Germany, living with a nameless older couple in their isolated cottage. At age eight, Dirk's life is forever changed by a fantastical experience in the forest that costs him an eye but gives him a second chance at life. He sets out from the Black Forest with only a carving knife and a wooden walking staff, both which will figure prominently throughout Dirk's adventures. Once out of the woods, he meets an ever-evolving cast of characters, including a humble pastor who gives Dirk the last name of Drosselmeyer, a wealthy student who introduces Dirk to the power of music and seduces him with it, and a sweet sleepwalking Persian woman who fruitlessly searches for the lost garden of her childhood. Every person and experience Dirk encounters helps shape him into the man he is destined to become. Divided into three sections, Hidden Sea sees Dirk age from a young boy to an old man. By the time Dirk and the reader arrive at that fateful Christmas Eve night, when Dirk's nutcracker is gifted to his young goddaughter, we can finally see the path of breadcrumbs McGuire has left for us along the entirety of the story. Ultimately, Hidden Sea, A Tale of the Once and Future Nutcracker is a novel about lost childhoods and the power of myth, both literal and figurative. So there you go. That's it in a nutshell. No pun intended. <laughs> Ooh, nicely done. Nicely yeah. done. It sounds like a bit of a, of a behemoth. I mean, like this long period of time, mm. as you put it, you know, quite a cast of characters as well. Did you feel like it was a bit too much to... Did, bite up a little bit too much to chew here? Uh, certainly well, after I, you know, kind of got into it for a little bit, I was like, okay, like this is a, this is the journey we're going on with this book. But, you know, I liked it. And I did think, you know, at points because there was nothing Christmassy really about it at all that I was like, Ooh, am I going to have to read something else to, to really get get us through and get us into this kind of Christmas frame of mind with, with another choice maybe, but it really got me thinking about how Christmas is, is it's all about childhood really. I mean, 
you know, at least our modern Christmas for sure, we're thinking about our own childhoods and how things have changed, especially I think after you've had your own children and you're trying to create this magical experience for them and how how they experience Christmas now will not be how they experience it later and how you can, I mean, you can kind of vicariously live through a child's eyes and the wonder that they experience and the excitement that they have around Christmas. But childhood really is like this magical little kingdom that you inhabit for a period of time. And then once you kind of walk out those gates into the forest, <laughs> there's no going back really, you know, mm. not in any kind of real sense. And so that's what I kept thinking of as I was reading it. I think you know, that was part of what Maguire was doing, or at least in my opinion from, you know, and I have a bunch of kind of excerpts that I'll, I'll kind of share throughout our conversation, but that's really kind of a focal point of the book is, is it's a, it's something that can be lost. So yeah, it was a bit of a behemoth and the way that Maguire writes too, is very kind of um, flowery, effusive. Mm. I don't know. That may not be the right term, but it's so it, it actually takes like I feel like a little bit more work to read um, than maybe have some you, other books. Have you got a passage there that you think like maybe either the the sort of childhood theme you were talking about or even yeah. that sort of like flowery type of writing style? To, to kind of just, um, I, you know, I, I talked about how he once Dirk and excuse me, but the only other person I can think of who is named Dirk is Dirk Diggler. <laughs> <laughs> from Boogie Nights. And, you know, it's, it's a real, it's a real chore to, you know, constantly be battling thoughts of uh, Dirk Diggler when you're trying to think about Dirk Drosselmeyer. So I'll just put that one out there. But in any case, Dirk's living in the forest. He's living with this old man on, and old woman who literally, he, that's what he refers to them on. He does not know their names. He ends up having this like crazy experience and, loses an eye and then but ends up it's it's impossible for him to continue living in this forest with this couple essentially and this is a, a mild spoiler alert but it's so early in the book that like i don't feel like i'm giving that much away and it's so on par with like a brother's grim fairy tale like basically the old man and old woman once he's gotten to this age eight he's he was a foundling supposedly like not their kid just some baby that they found in the woods that had been abandoned and I guess they didn't mind taking care of him at first, but then he became a burden. So they're like, okay, you got to go. We're going to murder you. And so <laughs> essentially the reason why like he ends up having this fantastic, fantastical experience is because the old man takes him out to the forest and is going to kill him. And then there ends up being an accident. And anyway, he survives and makes it back to this, cottage but they're already arguing like you should you were supposed to kill him <laughs> like what are we gonna do with him now and uh he's like i gotta i gotta blow this joint like this is not gonna work for me so he leaves so he <laughs> he stumbles out of the black forest and he finds this really small community and he's taken in by this pastor and um he has no last name and so it's this pastor that gives him drosselmeyer and one of the things i will just say about this book is I feel like every name, every mention of a certain type of animal or tree is on purpose and is something that you should actually like keep in mind and maybe like look up. I, I, it, it helped me. I actually did like this like wild rabbit hole, like kind of search of like 
everybody's name. What does this name mean? Dirk actually means the people's ruler, by the way, in case you were wondering. Or and that would also apply to Dirk Diggler then too, I guess. <laughs> the people's ruler. Anyway, but it's also Scottish for a small, sharp knife, which, as I mentioned, is one of the two items that he brings with him when he leaves the Black Forest. And it does figure prominently, like I said. Drosselmeyer, it's, it has a bunch of different meanings. Throttle, to choke, but it also means the word thrush, the bird, a thrush bird, um, which that has, it's a, like a thrush kind of follows him throughout the book. There's all these different scenes where like a thrush is just like hanging out, watching him, singing to him, talking to him. So this pastor gives him this last name of Drosselmeyer and then kind of sends him on a little bit of a quest that brings him to meet all these other cast of characters that he he comes upon. And so he ends up going to like a wealthy family's home because he had to bring a message from this pastor to like, I guess the bishop and the bishop's gone and he leaves a message and he doesn't want to go back without a, re a response to the message. And so he ends up just kind of like hanging out. He basically gets a job for this wealthy family and he, that's how he meets this guy, Felix. Felix um, is friends. He's a school friend of one of the wealthy family's children. And he's just kind of hanging out. They're all there for the summer, just kind of chilling out, enjoying their, their wealth. And then, of course, Dirk is just working. But he kind of strikes up this odd friendship with Felix. It's definitely, I mean, the first time they meet, I was like, oh, Felix, I think I know. I think I know what you're up to. Like he, I think Felix is kind of into Dirk, and uh, you, were, you were picking up those signals from I from was, Felix. I was picking up those vibes for sure from Felix. And Felix is a musician. That's what he's studying at school. And so Dirk, who kind of just is self-described and how others describe him throughout the book, especially the earlier part of the book, is that he's kind of dull. And by dull, not like he's boring, but that he's, but he is kind of boring, I think, too, at, at some of those early points, but that he's kind of dumb, but he's really not. He's, uh, he's not necessarily somebody that I think is a reliable protagonist in terms of his thoughts of himself, how he perceives, perceives himself, because it becomes clear through characters like Felix and other characters throughout the book that he's, he's, I think, a lot more kind of, um, I don't know intriguing and attractive um, and intelligent than what he kind of gives himself credit for. But at the end of the summer, Dirk ends up, um, he's not employed by this family anymore. He has to figure something else out. And so he ends up going to work for like a paper miller. They're the Pfeiffer family. And he's married to a woman named Nostaron. And she's from Persia. And Dirk is immediately kind of attracted to her and intrigued by her she's like does she makes herself kind of scarce she kind of covers her face and veils a lot so like there's a good chunk of the time that he's living there and he doesn't even know what she fully looks like but he's attracted to her and so her husband ended up he ends up having to go um on this i guess annual journey that he does for his business and he leaves dirk kind of in her care because or her in Dirk's care because she sleepwalks and she has to kind of be watched at all times and so that she doesn't hurt herself or get lost or anything like that. And so that's Dirk's job is he's got to kind of keep an eye out for, he only has one eye, but um, oh. anyway, so he, he does and he's like, he's worried about her because she does sleepwalk and at one point she gets out of the house and 
he ends up through a bunch of kind of random circumstances. He he ends up meeting Felix again. Felix had kind of gone back to school, but somehow ends up in the same town that Dirk's now living in. And Felix introduces uh, Dirk to this uh, Dr. Mesmer, who he thinks might help Nasteron with her sleepwalking and why she sleepwalks. Because she doesn't really know. She doesn't, She feels like she's looking for something, but she doesn't know what she's looking for. So <laughs> that's the most long-winded. How about that passage? How about that passage? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll cut a lot of that, I'm sure. But <laughs> in any case, Dr. Mesmer puts her into kind of a trance. And when she comes out of it, he kind of explains to her like, okay, this is what you described to me when you were out and under. This is Dr. Mesmer talking to Frau Pfeiffer or Nostron. If I understand you correctly, you told me that when you walk forward in your sleep, you are trying to walk backward. I don't comprehend you, said Frau Pfeiffer, humbly, even pitiably. Backward to some time in the past, some place, some garden some walled garden in a place called, I think, something like Bandar. Bandari Bashir, she whispered. She held the pads of eight fingers and the nails of her thumbs at her lips as if to guard any other words from escaping. You left a child there among the roses in the fountains, among the shrieking peacocks and other luminous birds. You walk at night to try to return to collect the child, to rescue her, did not mean to leave her behind when you left with, was it, I think, merchants from the low countries, from Holland, Amsterdam, because of a family matter? And there you met your current husband. His voice was neutral, without scorn or blame. You could see the Persian Gulf. You could smell the salt in the air. There was a tiled dome on some ecclesiastical building, a mosque or a shrine that rose to the east, like the blue-veined breast of a sleeping mother. You could see it above the top of the stone wall. There was a pomegranate tree. There was a walnut tree. Someone used to tell you that the key to your life would be found in a walnut. You would collect the walnuts as they fell, but you hadn't the strength to open them by hand, and there was no brick or mallet or stone with which to strike them. I don't know who used to tell you that, I don't know much more, nor if I have said this very accurately at all. I'm somewhat out of practice. So this is what Mesmer describes to Nostron as her vision while she was under his trance. And later on, Dirk ends up going back to Mesmer by himself because he wants to try to find a solution to this to help Nostron. And so this is a few pages later. So this is Dirk speaking. I think the reason that Nostron is a poor mother to her sons is that she left her daughter behind when she sailed from Persia. She is distracted with grief. Surely something can be done about that. The child is dead. How do you know that? The doctor sighed and patted his heart as if cucumbers had featured in the breakfast menu. Don't you see? The child in the garden is Nostron herself, is Frau Pfeiffer as a girl. Whoever can give an adult a key to that lost garden. The child in that garden is gone. She cannot be rescued. She cannot be found. So they continue talking and then later on the same page, Dirk swallowed. She asked me to find the key. We all have our secret alphabets, private codes of gesture 
and symbol. Perhaps there was an actual walnut tree in the garden of her youth. Who knows? All children want to know the hidden meaning of the world until they grow up and resign themselves to it being unknowable. Every closed walnut that fell at her feet in that cherished past held, perhaps, more possibility than anything that has happened since. I can't say. The reason why I read that is because I felt like that was when I first started getting this inkling of this is about lost childhoods. If you look at Dirk as a character, he really literally has a lost childhood. I mean, he really was raised by people that he didn't call mom and dad. And he was, you know, there was an attempted (laughs) murder when he was a child and he had to kind of grow up at that point and fend for himself. And now he encounters this woman who's sleepwalking every night trying to get back to this garden she has no chance of ever getting back to trying to find a walnut that never really existed in the first place that is holds the key to her childhood and it's kind of this hopeless venture for her this is also a mild spoiler but again not super far into the book you know it's for her that Dirk uses the knife that he left the Black Forest with and uses the staff that he left the Black Forest with and carves the nutcracker. He carves it for Nostron as this kind of symbol of like, you have this nutcracker and it can hopefully crack this nut of your childhood. Like, I want to help you. For reasons I won't explain, she doesn't end up keeping it. He keeps it. It goes with him. He keeps the nutcracker all along his journey until the very end of the book. And the person who gets that nutcracker is Clara, the Clara from the Nutcracker Ballet, the Nutcracker story. Obviously, this nutcracker item, like it's a craft of his, and that it probably does somehow symbolize, you know, trying to find some sense of of beauty in hardship too, right? Like, and that is your tool to help you Mm -hmm. overcome so I, I actually really like that image, even though it is really painful. Like it's really sad actually to think about this poor woman and that the grief. Yeah. Of, did yeah. you connect with any of these characters or did they feel too mythical and too distant to really like have a, have like a, a connection with? I think I, I connected with the overall idea of thinking back to your child self and not being able to get to that person anymore. I didn't really connect with any particular character but i i just connected to this idea more than anything else of this this idea of a lost childhood you know i I feel like every book i read now like if there's kids in it or like a parental figure i'm i'm automatically like looking at it in the context of my own experience with motherhood and you know and and certainly looking at my own child and watching him grow and wanting to make things special for him but also like even looking at the what him and the way he plays and like there's a part of myself that used to play like that and I can't reach her do you know what Mm -hmm. I mean like Mm -hmm. I I play with him but it's so friggin boring (laughs) like I love playing I love playing with him but I I don't have the joy in the actual playing if Mm -hmm. anything I'm like enjoying his joy but like I remember like being able to create these stories in my head and act them out with dolls and figures or even act them out myself with, you know, like make believe and, Mm -hmm. and how that's so accessible to him and it's not accessible to me, but it once really was, it was like such a huge part of my own childhood playing experience, like was making up worlds and acting out what I would do in them. 
that it's that's so lost to me now. Mm-hmm. I know. I feel like it's it's a little part like preoccupation, right? Like, and I know you said it like partly as a joke, but and and I feel guilty saying it too. But there is truth to it that not every time you play with your kids is going to be magical, right? Like there's magical moments and there's glimmers, but sometimes you're just like, my gosh, like I wish you were just playing on your own because I need to do X, Y, and Z. But yet when you're a kid, it's like when you're not playing, all you want to do is be playing again. You want to be in that make-believe world. You're thinking about different ways to shape it. Like part of your brain is always existing in in those imaginary worlds um, because they're so important to you. And I think probably part of it, is because you have control over those worlds. And I think about this a lot with my kids, like they have so little agency, right? Like Mm. just everything they eat and do, their schedules, their activity, like it's so prescribed by us that when they do enter those worlds, they're in charge, right? Like that must be so liberal and so powerful for them there's another this is a much shorter passage don't worry uh, <laughs> he this is dirk and he's this is as the the two little boys that are um nostron sons they're older now and he's finally leaving them and he is thinking and he says is it only in childhood that we are capable of taking in the whole world what does it do to us that we briefly have that privilege and then what harm when the fund of novelty and human experience runs dry. And I don't know, like, Mm. I just feel like that kind of is, you know, somewhat what we're talking about, like this idea of like this curiosity, it's all possible. Mm. Magic is possible. And then at some point it's not anymore. Mm. We don't have access to it in a way that we once did. By the end of the novel, Drosselmeyer Dirk has become a toy maker. That's what he's ended up doing with his life. He travels the world, sees so much, and it all kind of comes back. And he ultimately becomes this toy maker. And it's like, again, I think speaking to the idea of lost childhoods, like he's making these small toys. It's like this way to reclaim his own lost childhood Mm. by making the playthings, the the vessels with which children can live out their their fantasies of what life is really like, you know? What's so, the name of the theme? Like, what was um, Michael Jackson's ranch called? Ever, Everland? Neverland. 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 Yeah, Neverland it, Ranch. Yeah, which is like from same Peter Pan. Image. Yeah, it's the same idea. You know, by the time Dr- Dirk gets to, you know, encounter... Clara as this now youngest, he goes kind of through like three different generations of kids. He starts off with the Pfeiffers and their two sons. And he spends a lot of time with those boys. And at first he's like, I don't know how to be with kids. Like, I'm not good at this. Like, why are you like leaving their care to me? Turns out like, again, unreliable narrator. He is actually great with kids. And like, when we come to those kids as adults, like they actually say to him, like, Hey, you were, you let us do things and like create worlds. And it was, you, you made our, our childhood Mm -hmm. magical type thing. But so he has the Pfeiffer kids. And then later on his friend Felix has two kids, two sons. And he ends up becoming their godfather and they grow up. And then it's one of those sons who is now the father of Fritz and Clara, who are the children of the kind of nutcracker story. And so he's now the old godfather who has been like, you know, making all these toys. And he also does, you know, works with clocks. And then he ends up incorporating that into his, his toy making. And the nutcracker itself is enchanted. There is real magic in this book. Mm -hmm. that 
Dirk encounters first in the Black Forest and it kind of follows him throughout. And it really kind of culminates in this like magical Christmas Eve night where there's this kind of battle between the toys and the mice. And on one hand, it's not real. And then on another hand, it's totally real. Right. And I think that's 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 the climax of the book. And it really, once you get to that part, you're like, oh, I totally understand everything that he did, every person that he encountered, every experience that he had is all just like adding up and leading mm. to this. And then it's weaving right in with the story that's familiar, like the fairy yeah. tale that people know. And so it's time yes. for me to ask you a very important question. For you, Sarah, is Hidden Sea by Gregory Maguire a good read book? a should read book or a must read book in your opinion? All right. So I think if we're talking about a broad audience here, it's a could read because this is not going to appeal to everybody. It, it won't. If you, I mean, obviously I suppose if you're going to read the book, maybe you have some interest in folk tales and fairy tales, but I think if you were just like, ah, I just want to check this book out, but I'm not really into that. It's not going to work for you. Um, so that's why it's a good read. But I do think if you're someone who, you know, had a relationship with a lot of fairy tales when you were a child, loved the Brothers Grimm and some of their kind of messed up <laughs> stories of childhood, then this would be a, a should read for that crowd, which is a much smaller crowd, I feel like. So I feel like could read for our broad audience, should read for our kind of more uh, niche fairy tale loving audience. So I'm kind of doing a twofer with that one. It's been so nice to talk to you about this book. Thank you so much for, for illuminating uh, this book for me <laughs> and for chatting with me about all of the preparations for Christmas. And I'm looking forward to our next episode where we're going to actually talk about some books that we both read in 2023. I can't wait. Bye. Bye. Bye.